Welcome back to the Neuroaffirming Parent Podcast Season 2. I'm your host, the Neuroaffirming Parent, and today I want to admit that I'm not good at self-promotion. Um, you might have seen on my Instagram where I posted that I did something a little different recently. And if you haven't noticed, I'll link it in the description, but I finally felt at a point in my parenting stage that I could just purge every little experience and thought into one little lovely document, which is where I self-published a book. And the title is The Imperfect Advocate. For the audiobook, I extended that title to be a story of a neurodivergent millennial bomb navigating the world of the public American school system. Now, is this a, like, an award-winning book? I doubt it. But for me, it was very cathartic to finally just put this information down and get it out of my system because it's been in my mind this entire time. And I feel very grateful because with this social media platform and even this podcast, I feel like I've done a lot of growth. I feel like I have expanded on a lot of my frustrations and I feel like I'm in a much better place now. Um, But I want to go back and just shout out to the current parents that are fighting the public American school system. Even internationally, there are a lot of parent advocates right there. So I want to talk about advocacy in this episode. And so I want to explain how this is a unique situation that happened in my state of Georgia. And a lot of things you're going to hear are probably outdated at this point, but I want to take you back to my advocacy battle in the circa of like 2021 through 2023. And I'm going to give you some resources that I used as well. And it's not necessarily new information. I've shared a little bit about our story and what brought us to homeschooling now. But I think with the connection of my book, I think it's only right to explain why I titled it The Imperfect Advocate and how I got there. So if you're interested, I'll link all that information in the description. But essentially, you kind of know my story where we tried the public school thing that I thought was going to work out because I went to public school. And when it wasn't working out, we had to go do our own research to find how to become an advocate for ourselves as a parent. So the main resource I'm highly going to recommend to you is a website called adayinourshoes.com. And I love this website because it's a mom advocate and she's on social media as well. And she's very honest in her articles and guides of how to navigate the special education process in United States of America. And it's, I'll be honest, to be difficult. And it didn't always start that way. That's not the history of how it's supposed to be. But unfortunately, that's the experience that most parents find out the hard way. So my journey kind of starts because we had in between all these school battles, we had classroom battles going on too, where like my daughter would come home and say she had no friends or that she got pushed on the playground. Um, so all these things intersecting at the same time. 
But essentially, we were sold this story of, oh, well, once you get the evaluation and once the IEP is there, everything's going to be right as rain. It's going to be perfect from then on out, right? And as a parent, you honestly do want to believe that the system is going to work in your favor because you pay taxes. Whether you choose to do public school or not, your money is going to that facility, right? So you want to have hope that your money, your income, your local government and everything is working to help you and not just you, but also your neighbor and your community to have a better education, right? Unfortunately, that was not my personal experience. So I have a few documents that I've pulled out of my history and I want to share with you today. And I can't guarantee that you'll be able to copy them word for word and use them in yourself to advocate for your child. And I'll explain why is because the truth is every school battle is very unique and independent. And even if one parent is successful, you can copy and paste that story. And it doesn't mean it's a perfect template to make every parent successful because these schools adapt and they change. And if one parent gets a due process case and passes, they usually change everything to prevent the next parent from doing a due process whole lawsuit and get anything changed or good happen, which is not, in my opinion, I don't think it should work that way. It should work the opposite. You'd think enough lawsuits and these schools would be like, hmm, maybe we are the problem. No, they will not do that. They will not admit that they are the problem. So how as a parent do you advocate for yourself? Um, I'm get, I'm not going to say I'm perfect because we didn't have a perfect experience, but I'm just going to explain what led us to this point. So when we finally got the IEP process and the school was like, okay, fine, we'll do the IEP. We were expecting, you know, okay, this is the solution. This is the answer. Everything's going to be great, right? No. Unfortunately, the IEP was actually the start of the downfall, and it's when we started to see the cracks in the foundation of what was going on because there was more answers of interventions and remediation versus any kind of concern or interest in how to apply these solutions to the general education classroom. I... Today, I feel like, looking back now, they treated the general education classroom as like this perfect bubble that they thought was a unshakable, perfect education model. And you could argue that they thought, oh, well, if this is great for neurotypical kids, everything else is for the neurodivergent kids. Now, they would not use that terminology. They refused to use that terminology. But this is just my observation of our situation in the past. Because they set up this kind of general education model. And at the time, it was already outdated because they had balanced literacy. They were still doing rote memorization for almost everything in the classroom. And if your child could not sit still and listen and memorize everything they wanted you to memorize, your child was deemed other. And you couldn't easily get an IEP. We had to first uh, request parent-teacher conferences. Then we had to have 
uh, student support team meetings, SST meetings. And then finally, we had to get an outside evaluation and a school evaluation, which got us to this point of finally getting to the IEP, which I would argue, you know, you're in an IEP meeting in your team, it's supposed to be the all the people on the same side for you and your child. But a lot of the time, it's mostly just people representing the school and the school district and trying to deny, 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 deny. And it's not so much denial as in, oh, your child doesn't need this. You know, this isn't the best placement for your child. It's denial of extra funds going to your child. And unless they see the benefit of those funds going to a specialist or a teacher or somebody with a niche or an administrator, they don't necessarily see the value in approving that accommodation or modification. And my personal problem was even if I found a low cost solution, um, they didn't want to hear that. They were not interested in simple accommodations and modifications that a general education teacher could do to make my daughter feel included in the classroom. They always put the blame on my daughter or myself as the problem. So once we knew that we were not happy with the current IEP, the website A Day in Our Shoes, you know, kind of spells out for you, okay. And even my department of education was really good about being clear about what is your dispute resolution process, right? And so when you have issues with an IE, but you do feel like the IEP is a good fit for your child, you have the right as a parent to request an independent education evaluation. Now, is this a perfect solution? No. And I love the website explicitly tells parents, hey, no, you might want to do some research first because it might not be the best thing for you. Because the common mistake is that usually parents just think, oh, if I have a right to IEE, well, why wouldn't I request an IEE? Well, the truth is, in the IDEA or IDEA bylaws, it says if the school district believes that their evaluations are valid and they choose to deny the IEE, they, per IDEA, must file for due process. So the district absolutely can always say no to the IEE and most times they do and the interesting part for my experience wasn't because we weren't told no it's that I had already done the research prior to see if it was even possible because an IEE is an independent evaluation paid for at the expense of the school district and so you're going to get a lot of pushback from schools because number one they don't want to foot the bill or admit that they had evaluations that were invalidated and they don't want to have any kind of paperwork that makes them look bad and so also the thing is is you don't want the school district to have any ability to delay um because like I've talked about that before is like this wait to fail method they love the fact that all of this bureaucracy and all this red tape is on their side. So when you ask for documentation, they have a few days to give it to you. When you ask for meetings, they have a few days to get their stuff together, right? So I'm going to share with you, and this is a kind of a full circle moment because my husband, even after I wrote this IE, um, he even said, like, maybe you should just, like, publish this, like, in a newspaper or something, which... Part of me was like, yeah, nobody would ever publish this because I'm not the most friendly person when it comes to our school district. 
But I want to read this IEE request letter to you to kind of get an idea of what I was up against, because I think it's easy for people to discount parents and say, well, oh, you don't have a degree. You don't know what you're talking about. Or, oh, you didn't do the research. Or, oh, you're some conspiracy theorist and all this, right? Um, for me personally, I am biased about myself, but I did feel like I did enough due diligence um, to request this. So this happened September 2022. So I typed this up. I had my husband read over it and then we submitted it through email and rated for a response. So it starts out, dear IEP team of my daughter, kindergarten at our public school. She was evaluated for special education services in June of 2022. I am currently writing to request an IEE at public expense for the following reasons. And I give... 10 reasons with little side notes. And this is why the district hated me because I don't just write short emails. I write lengthy emails. And that was one of their complaints. But here we go. Number one, in kindergarten, my daughter is having issues with phonics, rhyming, remembering audible and verbal directions in the short term, gets distracted and is drawing cats or doodling during lessons and is falling asleep during language and reading instruction. These were the complaints that I was getting constantly and daily from the kindergarten teacher. And it's ironic for me because in a homeschool setting, I don't care. I don't care if she's drawing cats. Like the other day she draw, she drew all the solar system planets in cat form. She's learning. I didn't care. Right. All right. Number two. In pre-kindergarten or pre-K, my daughter wrote her name but was unable to paste in the right order. Had trouble with letters B, D, N, Q, and P. This was observed to be very creative and she enjoyed creative freedom when she chose. She got frustrated and refused to do tasks involving letters. She needed a longer time frame to express herself verbally and struggled to stay on task. So the reason I put this in here was they never acknowledged in the IEP forms that they suspected dyslexia or a specific learning disability at all. So I wanted it documented in paper form, the certain letters, which was interesting to me because that was well documented in pre-K and in kindergarten on progress reports, but they always ignored that as an issue. And then when it comes to I put in their creative is because I have documented emails from her pre-K teacher saying, hey, she's doing really good. She is very creative. That's one of her strengths. Number three, family history of dyslexia and giftedness. I included that also because I wanted that documented in her paperwork. Number four, my daughter's pediatrician and health insurance stated they do not offer screening or a diagnosis of dyslexia. They advised me to get the screenings through the school system. Number five, we understand the recommendation of a brain balance doctor was well-intentioned, but the groundbreaking brain balance program for kids, ADHD, dyslexia, and other neurological disorders has been acknowledged to be not based in fact. And the current expert that was credited on the site of this person that we were recommended to go to um, cited this brain balance founding doctor who claims to be an expert in the field of functional neurology, which is a chiropractic world controversial alternative to mainstream neurology. 
So in the doctor's biography, he even states he has a master's degree in neuroscience and clinical rehab neuropsychology, but it does not say from where. And for me, that is an important point for parents. When you get recommendations from the school district, investigate the person they recommend. Look up the reviews. Find out their schooling. That, I wouldn't even say... I mean, because the interesting thing is the flip side of that is when it comes to school districts, parents do have the right to request a teacher's background, a teacher's history. What school did they go to? What kind of degree did they get? What kind of specializations do they have? So it was so interesting to me that a public school could recommend a doctor that basically has a PhD in nothing. But I go on. So out of number five, I put sub line A. The Association for Science um, published an article saying, is there science behind that brain balance? It states the following. The materials that have been published on the efficacy of brain balance show must involve testimonials, self-reports, and only a few low-quality research studies. All of these elements of proof that brain balance claims is effectively weak in terms of empirical evidence and should be considered with caution. So subheading B Um, I quoted a doctor that said the study presented as evidence for brain balance programs does not constitute evidence. While some aspects of the program interventions are already used in more conventional programs and might prove helpful to individual children, there is no indication that these theoretical concepts of functional disconnectivity or brain imbalance or hemisphere specific training as if they're useful. The brain balance program is based on speculation, not on credible evidence. This is subheading C. So since the proponents of brain balance cannot rely on empirical scientific evidence to support the use of such treatment, they instead invoke subjective firsthand accounts and dozens of emotional caregiver testimonials containing miracle stories of lives changed for the better. Testimonials are considered non-evidence and provide little confidence of empirical proof. Subheading D. So, addition to brain balance employing the heavy appeal to emotional tactics through caregiver testimonials, there's overall lack of high quality research in support of brain balance as an effective treatment for individuals with, if you suspect, autism, ADHD, dyslexia, or other related disorders. Many of the studies that evaluate brain balance lack the necessarily elements of research such as demonstration of experimental control, reliability of measurement, replication of independent and third-party researchers, measurable definition of behavior, experimental design, and control over threats to internal validity. So essentially, all of these bullet points do explain that, no, we are not going to trust a brain balance doctor, right? And so then I move on into number six. So IDEA states that the use of a severe discrepancy or the difference between cognitive or IQ scores and educational achievement scores must not be required for identification of an SLD, which is a specific learning disability, including dyslexia. Cognitive or intelligence testing is not required as a part of the SLD identification process. Number seven, I quote a different doctor uh, from the research professor of psychology and education at Florida State University. Um who is one of the many researchers who discovered that early intervention prevents reading difficulties from worsening. Early means the first two years of school. Intervention means systematic, structured, and explicit teaching that is targeted at the individual needs of a child. 
This doctor's research found that most children identify identified as falling behind who receive intensive help by age six will go on to become good at reading. The age children receive intervention affects how quickly they can catch up and how long it takes for them to reach a good reading level. 90% will become good readers if they get help at age six. 75% of children whose help is delayed to age nine or later continue to struggle throughout their school careers. If help is delayed at age nine rather than age six, it takes four times as long to improve the same skills by the same amount. Using the let's wait and see approach causes them to fall further behind and often leads to damaged self-esteem. The majority of cases, there is no systemic identification until third grade, by which time successful remediation is more difficult and more costly. So why did I include that quote? It's because we had already in our SST process heard the terms, let's wait and see. And in the original, um, the previous IEP meeting to this letter request, we were told when we asked about dyslexia, they just said, well, we don't do that until third grade. So my argument was, hey, I have this quote from a researcher that proves waiting to third grade or age nine is harmful. All right, number eight. So I quote another doctor that says, I often say beware of developmental lag excuse. Early signs of difficulty should not be attributed to immaturity. When a kindergarten child confuses letters, associates the wrong sound with a letter, or cannot distinguish a rhyme, it usually has nothing to do with the social maturity. The rationale is that it is better to slightly over-identify the number of children who may be at risk of reading difficulty than to miss who may need help. The worst outcome of over-identification is that a child would be eventually have caught on receives some additional help. Effective and intense intervention must be offered immediately. Students who lag behind their peers must be given extra help, preferably in groups of three or fewer students by a well-trained educator who knows how to deliver effective instruction. Parents who understand the risk of delay in getting help of their child's reading problems are motivated not to wait. Children can be brought up to grade level much more successfully with less effort if effective intervention is offered early. Once parents understand the risks of waiting, hopefully it'll be easier to overcome concerns and get help immediately. So why did I quote this doctor? Because we constantly heard in these meetings, oh, it doesn't hurt to wait. Oh, you know, just wait and see. And the facts are the opposite. Yes, it does hurt a student to wait and see. Early identification is the best route. Number nine, it is a myth that dyslexia cannot be identified until the age of eight years old. A child with dyslexia will show signs as soon as they start school. Screening evaluations can be used from the age five and a half. Most people with dyslexia will learn to read and spell to competent level within time. The correct teaching approach and if explicit instruction is started by the ages of six or seven. However, the underlying causes will always be there and continue to affect areas such as memory and organization. Nessie.com. So why did I include this? Number one, the school had no clue about Nessie. Number two, the dyslexia law had been passed in Georgia in 2019, but the school was doing absolutely nothing to pre pre prepare for that. Now, I will say this information is probably outdated at this time because in this year of 2024, Georgia should be implementing universal dyslexia screeners this year, but that's yet to be reported on. 
Number 10, we understand that in 2019, the SB48 bill, which is the Georgia Dyslexia Bill, signed into law and a Dyslexia Information Handbook was created. It defines dyslexia as a specific learning disability that is a neurobiological in origin. Dyslexia is a language-based learning disability. The exact causes of dyslexia are not completely clear, but anatomical and brain imagery studies show differences in the way the brain of a person with dyslexia develops and functions which we now know is neurodiversity. So I even quoted the International Dyslexia Association says there's no benefit to the child if a special instruction is delayed for months while waiting for an involved testing process to occur. So my request ended with, we would like this independent educational evaluation to be done as quickly as possible so that we can fully assess our daughter's needs. Please respond as soon as possible and send us a printed and digital copies of the school's guidelines for this. I provided our phone numbers, our name, we signed it, and we submitted it. So what happened after that? Well, I still have the emails, so I can tell you. They ignored it. Um, so I had to send a follow-up email to say, hey, please see this attached letter. We are expecting a prior written notice of the following. An IEP team answer to our request um, for an IEE, um, so on and so on, right? So we got no response. And then finally, we got a response later and they were just like, okay, we'll look into this. Well, the funny thing is I already knew what the answer was going to be because I had already called around and asked if anybody locally provides a dyslexia screener or a specific learning dyslexia reader. The only one I could find was Atlanta Speech School and even they confirmed for me um, that if the school was willing to have me drive my daughter, um, that we could file paperwork or whatever to have the school pay for that independent evaluation. And they emphasized that it was cheaper with the pay scale, the younger my daughter was. And essentially that should give some kind of incentive to the public school and be like, hey, yeah, we should probably go ahead and pay for this evaluation while it's cheaper instead of waiting for the child to be older and then it's not just a thousand dollars it's like tens of thousands of dollars um but that did not help so while we were waiting for the IEE response unfortunately we had another incident with my daughter um where she was pushed or hurt on the playground and they refused to show me the video footage and all that jazz so essentially in my state it was a unique situation because if you have a problem with your IEP and you don't get any response with the IEE, they were getting so much due process requests and complaint requests during the pandemic that they created this intermediate um, part of their dispute resolution process. So now the dispute resolution process in my state um, includes an individual education program facilitation. And then if that doesn't work, then you move to IDEA special education mediation. And if that doesn't work, then you go to IDEA special education written state complaint. Then if that doesn't work, then you go to an IDEA special education due process complaint. And then if that doesn't work, then you, or essentially that should be the end of the process. And then you have a resolution meeting. So, a lot of people will wonder why we didn't go through the whole state complaint and due process complaint. I was really considering the state complaint, but let me explain more. So when it comes to the IEP facilitation meeting, 
what happens is you request it. Well, the funny part with my school <laughs> um, experience was they had no clue this was added. And this was in 2022. And it shouldn't have come as a surprise for them. I, in my personal opinion, they should have already had that on their radar or known what it was because it's pretty clear on the Georgia Department of Education website. Um, so it was very interesting to see these grown adults stumble over their words and actions because as soon as I requested the FIEP meeting, they... I got all sorts of different responses. So I want you to understand that like our IEP meeting team, like our email chain wasn't just one person. It was like several people CC'd onto like a longer email document. And so as soon as I requested the meeting, one of the special education um, people were like, oh, okay, we can schedule that. Um, what, what day works for you? And I had to go and be like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. This is a meeting you have to submit in writing to the Georgia of Education um, Department and they will schedule it for you and they will designate a facilitator for you. So it was interesting to see them stumble like that. Um, And then also one of the special education directors, she got confused because she thought I was asking for mediation. So she went ahead and sent me mediation paperwork, not understanding that prior to mediation would be an FIEP or a facilitated IEP meeting. So I want to explain what this means. So it's not required by IDEA, um, that states require this. It's a option that my state, Georgia, provided in response to an overwhelming problem with IEP meetings. So I'm going to read off the website and explain. So it's a collaborative dispute prevention and resolution process used when team members of an IEP meeting agree that the presence of a third party would help facilitate communication and problem solving. It can be especially useful when there's a history of communication challenges or the meeting is expected to be particularly complex or controversial. So in this meeting, an impartial facilitator helps to keep the members of the team focused on the development of the IEP while addressing conflicts and disagreements that may arise during the meeting. So at the meeting, the facilitator will use communication skills that create an environment in which the IEP team members can listen to each other's point and work together to complete the development of a high quality IEP. So our facilitator was a lawyer, And the great thing was is she called me um, as soon as she got the paperwork and tried to ask like my point of view. And then she said, hey, just send me any information that will help me uh, understand the background information. So I sent her the IEP letter. And then I also included an FIEP letter addressed to her. So I'm going to read that to you as well. So I said, please let us introduce ourselves as parents of my daughter. Um, We both wanted to write a letter addressing our questions and concerns in relation to our daughter's school experience and most recently established the IEP. So I am the primary caregiver, currently a stay-at-home mom, to also my daughter's little brother. And I go into some background about my school history as well. So I write in this letter that I was personally identified as a gifted student in 2002 due to a standardized test in a not-too-far-away-from-us school system I was in the gifted and honors program until high school graduation. Um, I was never identified with dyslexia due to school performance that was high, but I do have a documented family history of dyslexia. 
Then I include my husband's background. I tell him about his job, that he has his own family history of dyslexia. He's very supportive of our daughter's academic career. Um, and then I included that. We wanted to give this facilitator a compacted background of our history because we both attended local school systems. And we were confused, frustrated, and desperate to help our daughter in and every possible way to succeed in the public school system. So I told her the main goal we want to achieve in the FIEP meeting is to make sure that our daughter is getting a free, appropriate public education or FAPE in the least restrictive environment, LRE. I said most of the issues that we have are currently being experienced ongoing issues that haven't fully been resolved. My daughter has always been a happy child. And I explained that even at two years old, she taught herself the alphabet song, saying it to both of us several times during laundry chores. At almost three years old, she was counting 40, the number 40 for fun. When she turned four years old, she was very excited to go to school. During open house, we met her pre-K teacher and found out early on that it was the pre-K teacher's first year. Um, I go into those details. Um, I explained the first week of pre-K, my daughter was very happy every day that she came home. Second week is when we noticed a difference. She verbally said she was bored in class. Um, she mentioned how she wanted to go back to summer camp, which was a dance camp that she went to that she had really a lot of fun at. So I explained that in September 2021, our daughter experienced her first major illness. She went to the hospital. That interrupted her education for a time, and it left a huge impression on her, and she continued to talk about it for months after. And I and I even included that I observed at a field trip where her pre-K teacher did not affirm or validate this traumatic experience she was just kind of very annoyed and tired of my daughter talking about this experience um so I go in to explain that we had no indication of any learning disabilities the only possible indication of a learning difficulty was when she got a low store score on a universal speech screener that was given to the class and that's when we got introduced to this SST meeting situation in November of 2021 and then my per- I included that my personal experience of being a gifted adult, I knew that some of the issues my daughter was having in school could be related to giftedness. So I purchased books, read papers, found out about giftedness under this huge umbrella of neurodiversity and that it's a fundamental brain difference and a neuro minority of brain differences just like dyslexia, ADHD, autism, and many other disabilities protected under IDEA. So I explained in the letter how I know that giftedness is connected to overexcited abilities. Um, And I even include that I was not given any information about what SST was or how the MTSS system worked. And it wasn't until I contacted the school's parent mentor that I got more information, but the information I got did not match what was we were seeing in the classroom. And we were not given copies of any of the RTI information that was supposedly happening or any of the data that we saw in IEP meetings, we never got a copy of. And so I even included that when I randomly checked um, our school app, that's when I found more documentation related to the whole RTI process and found out that our daughter was indicated to be tier three um, because they claim, which the interesting thing is if you research MTSS 
and tiers and how they work. A tier three is only for a student that has really bad behavior and that has like several referrals to the principal and my daughter had none. So she had somehow jumped the gun from tier one all the way to tier three. And I included that in between February of from November 2021 to February 2022, our daughter was taken aside one-on-one every day in her general education class with the pre-K teacher who wasn't formally trained, but was just to ask her WH questions verbally. And when this quote-unquote intervention didn't show progress, um, the teacher changed the questions to include certain topics that my daughter was interested in, like our family cat. Uh, but the questions and responses were not documented and the data was not continuously collected. So in December 2021 through January 2022, it was the first anniversary of our family loss um, related to COVID. And so I included that as a traumatic experience too. So all this trauma surrounded by school issues and social emotional issues kind of compounded on February 2022. Um, when we got the occupational therapy report completed where they even said like, hey, she's fine. She doesn't need any um, interventions on the occupational therapy side because she's doing so well in class. Um, then I continued that we had more SST meetings. And essentially on March of 2022 was when we really we're told that you know okay well this is enough and we're going to go ahead with the evaluations or put her on the list to get an evaluation and then we were kind of urged oh yeah well if you can get an outside evaluation that would be great but we think it's really just a maturity issue blah 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 and so in this FIEP letter I just kind of pulled our background together and so I even explained like how I felt about the first IEP meeting and I I really just wanted to give her background so when she did come into the meeting she understood all the current conflict conflicts that were going around and what brought us to this point in this stage of our parent advocacy. And so I even included some quotes from the emails that I'd gotten recently from her kindergarten teacher. Like an example is August 2022. Uh, my daughter complained of a headache. She went to the school nurse. We didn't get a phone call. Um, the teacher notified us through an email. August, uh, again, we were contacted. Um, well, we chose to contact the director of student services, which is like the person who deals with IT and all this stuff. And we found out, oh, there's this phone issue. And the school apparently didn't explain to us that even if they wanted to call us, that they couldn't get through for some reason. So I had to call somebody to get that fixed, which was annoying. Then again in August, um, the kindergarten teacher said she had concerns of my daughter's behavior in class. So this is when I started to see the escalation of them focusing on behavior and not academics. So they would say, oh, my daughter's having a hard time completing her work in a timely manner. She gets distracted, draws cats or paw prints instead of completing it. She really benefits from having someone sit right next to her to keep her on task. She seems more tired today than usual, didn't want to wear her glasses, um, blah, 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 right? And so I knew what they were trying to do. They were trying to push this into, well, you know, she can't really handle general education. We think one-on-one would be best. And I was just like, no, not having it, right? 
So the end, and this is like a three page document I included with this email, right? And so at the end, I just included that we are hoping for you as a facilitator and especially as a parent that you can help keep members of this IEP team focused on the development of the IEP while addressing conflicts and disagreements that may arise during the meeting. And we believe that the presence of a third party would help facilitate communication and problem solving, especially when a meeting is expected to be particularly complex due to new information being provided. So essentially what happened So I was really looking forward to this FIEP meeting. I felt like it was a good natural step to take. Um, I even got advice from other um, organizations that like, yeah, this is going to really help you um, because mediation is kind of permanent and final. It's like more of like a predecessor to a lawsuit and, you know, a facilitation will really help you. Now, knowing what I know now, I don't feel like I would change anything, but ultimately it did not help us. Sadly, um, the FIEP meeting really just showed us that our school fundamentally did not know how to do an IEP meeting. And I would say it's partly to blame because of the state, because before computers, people had more hands-on um when it comes to the formats and everything now in most states, they have a computer program and these adults follow the computer program. And I've even seen an IEP meetings where like the um, special education director was like, well, hold on. Cause I have to wait for this page to change or hold on. I can't choose that option. It won't let me do this or it won't let me do that. Or a teacher would get frustrated because They didn't have the training to understand how to operate the computer. So it was just more like a roadblock, even though it was supposed to make things easier and smoother. And for me, going into the FIEP meeting, it was very interesting to see the stark contrast of a regular IEP meeting. So in the regular IEP meetings, I had to wait a long time. There was no snacks offered. It was usually a rush to start the room, a rush to start it. And it was usually in old classroom. So the change was an FIEP meeting, the principal was there as well. Um, and there were snacks provided and it wasn't a regular classroom. It was like an actual meeting room. And so the facilitator, I would not want to knock her. Um, she was very nice and very friendly. And I think that was part of her job. So her whole thing was, I don't do paperwork. Um, I just help you guys facilitate this meeting. So she put up a lot of dry erase um, visual aids on the board. And it was kind of sectioned out between like, okay, what are her current data points? What are the goals? And how are we going to get there? And what are the school's concerns? And what are the parents' concerns? And how do we meet in the middle? So I really appreciated the fact that she had visual aids and it just like kind of was hilarious to me that these people who wanted to refuse visual aids for my own daughter needed visual aids to uh, help my daughter. It was just hilarious, right? So the good thing was that we were able to take pictures of this before she wiped them clean. The problem was, even though she was a lawyer, she could not give any advice on how to do the IEP because she was supposed to be impartial and outside. So looking back, there are a lot of things that happen that should have not happened because the school 
um, in the end, wanted me to pick up my daughter early, undocumented, which is not supposed to happen an idea. Um, but that's what a lot of schools you'd see are doing that instead of documenting expulsion or documenting a early dismissal, they will force the parent and say, hey, well, you know, they just can't handle school right now or their behavior or they're not mature enough. So we need you to pick them up early. And for me as a mom, I knew the very real reality of my daughter staying at the school longer than them wanting her at the school meant that there was a possibility of her getting hurt. So there was a power struggle in that request because you don't have any ground to stand on because really as a parent, I felt like if I don't agree to their request, I am almost giving them permission to hurt my daughter. And I know that's almost irrational, but from my own experience, I know that is true. So when it came to the FIEP meeting and that didn't work, Um, it was interesting because I have this email still to this day that says, well, ma'am, we sent you a, a request for mediation on November of 2022 and you did not return the mediation request form. And they completely ignored the fact that in between that time that we had a facilitated IEP meeting. So it was very interesting to me. So essentially at that point, that's when my daughter got hurt by the paraprofessional. She got pushed into a shelf. So when we, currently at that time, she was in counseling virtually. And when we told the counselor, the counselor was like, that's ridiculous. Um, You should be able to request a change of classroom or a change of in-county school. Um you should have things that you can do, right? And that's what we felt like too. So I formally wrote a letter and requested a classroom change. We were told no because of the IEP, which is not true. I know that now. Um, And the problem was even the superintendent didn't understand IDEA or how IEPs work. And they just deferred everything to this special education director. Um that also didn't know how things worked and so when they wanted us to go through mediation at this point I was like excuse me um and also they were complaining that we didn't have another IEP um appointment scheduled so essentially what they wanted to do was after my daughter got hurt instead of prompting even an IEP meeting If I had a problem with how they handled the situation, they wanted me to have an IEP meeting to deal with them of how they did an investigation to prove or they claim it was an accident, right? And I'm just like, why would I keep sending my daughter to a school that doesn't value her safety, that put her in danger, put her in harm's way, and then told that teacher it's okay to hurt students and that it's just an accident? So at this point, me and my husband were fuming. I was just like looking, I was like, okay, what can we do? So if they're claiming the IEP is the reason that we couldn't change the classrooms, I was researching. I was like, so what if we just revoke the IEP, right? And this also happened at the same time that I was researching the graduation rates of IEP students. And this is where I found the information of, oh, my local school district. Yeah, when you have a general education student, their chances for graduation rates is what they produce on their website. It's usually like a 91%. 
But when you have a student with an IEP, that drops down to like 60 or 70% of graduation rate. And I wasn't told that. I always sold this story of, oh, IEPs are awesome. They're, you know, recorded. It's a legal document. It's only the thing that's best for the parent and the student. And everything I was seeing was not showing that for me. It seemed to benefit the school district a whole lot more. So when I researched this, I found a document that said, effective as December 31st, 2008, Parents or students over the age of 18 have the right to remove a child themselves or themselves from special education related services, even when the school system disagrees and believes that the student still requires special education related services. So why did this happen? It's a part of also um, No Child Left Behind Act. And it's because a lot of parents were getting frustrated with this ineffective balanced literacy instruction and I mean I'm, I don't even know if it was called balanced literacy back then but like anyway this whole language instruction they saw through the facade right so to go on this document says the revoking of consent is a revocation of all special education related services it is not partial reloc- revocation so when someone consents to re- removing um, an IEP the parent who disagrees with One recommended services for the IEP should not revoke consent and should request an IEP meeting to negotiate the provision of FAPE or free and appropriate public education. Parents who continue to disagree with IEP services may also continue the dispute resolution network to work out the issues. But here's the thing. On any DOE website, like Department of Education, they usually don't highlight that you can revoke services. And it's interesting to me because... We had been through this whole process. The IEP didn't work. We weren't unhappy with one part. We were unhappy with all of it. And the dispute resolution, when you go through a due process, it forces your child to stay in their current placement. And that school was not safe. So we weren't going to do that. So we drafted a letter. and I'm going to read that for you now. Um, so I said to who it may concern, we are revoking the parental consent to the current individual education plan. This is due to my daughter's report card from October, 2022 has her meeting grade level expectations. The current IEP sets low expectations and misrepresents my daughter's educational potential. It does not capitalize on the characteristic strengths of my daughter. It does not value parental input and has made communication between the parents and the school more complicated. My daughter um, also at that time when we were doing the early school pickup, conveniently for a school party, she stayed the full day and had no issues with nap time or staying awake or anything that the school had presented prior. Number four, the school did not make my daughter's safety a priority. We were unable to change classrooms or schools due to what the school claimed is the current IEP. Number five, we believe that the Georgia Department of Education's update of standards in 2024 will improve the general education classroom to meet our daughter's current and future needs. So we understand that by sending this letter and signing below, we are acknowledging that one, the school district will stop providing special education and related services to our daughter beginning the date identified in the prior written notice given to us by the district. 
Number two, the district cannot use dispute resolution options to challenge our right to terminate special education services for our child. Number three, the district will no longer be required to conduct re-evaluations, convene an IEP meeting, or develop an IEP for our child. Number four, the district will not consider, um, will not be considered in violation of the requirement to make FAPE available to our child. Number five, the district is not required to amend my daughter's education records to remove references to her receipt of special education related services. Number six, my daughter will be subject to all of the same requirements that that apply to general education students, such as academics, statewide district assessments, extracurricular activities, graduation requirements, discipline, and all the other general education, education requirements. Number seven, we understand that my daughter will not receive protections afforded to special education students under the law because she would be treated as a general education student in regards to discipline. Number eight, if we change our mind at any point in the future, our daughter will go through the initial evaluation process all over again. Number nine, IEPs cannot be paused and then reinstated. Number 10, we understand nothing in the current code would prevent a general education teacher from providing a child whose parent has revoked consent for the continued provision of special education and related services with accommodations or modifications that are available to non-disabled children under relevant state standards. Number 11, we will be provided a prior written notice after we revoke consent. I put a little checkbox, checked it, and said we revoke our consent for special education and related services to be provided to our child. I signed it, my husband signed it, and we submitted it. So did we get a prompt response? No. And the interesting thing, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of parent advocates will understand that the problem with IDEA is that they do not specify when you are required to get a prior written notice. It's just kind of like ASAP or as soon as possible that the district provides. So the ball was in their court at that point. Now, my problem with them was that they thought this was a request. This is not a request. When you revoke a service, it is a notification. So that time clock was ticking as soon as I sent that email and they didn't understand that. And so it made them scramble and it was hilarious to watch them scramble because this meant taking money away from them. They had seen my daughter as a cash cow to place all these services on her and, you know, pay the Linda Mood Bell specialist and pay all these special education teachers. I mean, there was like at one point, like 10 people in the IEP meeting room and about eight of them did not interact with my daughter, did not know my daughter or did not have a recent communication or any conversation with my daughter. But the district was paying them every time that they were in a meeting. Which I think it's important for parents to understand because even if you pay or even if you have a free advocate with you or even if you pay for an IEP advocate to be with you in that meeting, there is no guarantee that that school has to do anything that you want them to do. They can always deny because they have the power in that relationship. Even though, you know, my state has parents' rights laws. You know, you think as a parent you should have the ability to fight for your child's education. But unfortunately, if these schools only care about money and not a student or a child or the community, they are going to do what's in their best interest. So it's interesting to me because I found this document online and 
as soon as we did revoke the IEP, nothing changed. It just got worse. So they were mad because they had a wonderful little schedule where if the kindergarten teacher didn't want to deal with my daughter. They could just ship her off to the special education um, teacher or to that classroom or the Linda Mood Belt pullout program. And it was a solution for them. And if they didn't want her to be in class the entire day, I was there to pick her up early. It was about like two o'clock, right? Everything that was in the IEP was working for the school, not my daughter. And it was so interesting to me because at the same time, I was seeing these wonderful dyslexia mom advocates online. I was watching the superintendent meetings. I was seeing all this advocacy happen. I was listening to the Soul to Story podcast. I was watching all the Right to Read movies and seeing a realistic change outside of my current school system. And it wasn't being applied. So... That is essentially why we came to the conclusion of, okay, well, if the school's not safe, if we don't have any recourse with special education, why are we still here? So we withdrew immediately. And I will say it was interesting because as soon as we switched from the public school to a virtual school, the virtual school still had the IEP paperwork as active. And that's not supposed to happen. So it's interesting to me because I'm also thinking in my mind at that time, what if we didn't withdraw? Would they have still put on the books that my daughter was an IEP student without fully withdrawing her and still cashing that check and getting that extra funding without me knowing? I don't know. Um, When I called the school to find out, they claimed that, oh, well, it wasn't us. It was like the, the state website oh they still have that information in there blah 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 the interesting is they never filed the IEE request they never filed the paperwork of the revocation because I asked the virtual school hey do you see that on the state documents and I emailed it to them so definitely as a parent advocate keep all your records don't assume that they file everything Um, I hate to say it, but you might have to double check. You might have to go back behind them and see if they even did their job. And for me, that's very frustrating, not just as a parent, not just as a neurodivergent person, not just as a citizen, but as a human, when we have these laws and we have these legal paperwork and, you know, avenues that you're supposed to take to defend a human and the system's broken, it's messed up. It breaks my heart. So not to ruin it if you want to read my book, but the ending I tried to make, I tried to tie it up in a little bow. And I explained how, you know, my character moves on from the public school system. But I think it's important for all parents to share. So I would love to see more parents write about their school struggles. I know that people think it's boring. I know that people think, oh, my story's not unique. You know, there's a million stories out there. But I want to empower parents. Like, you don't, I mean, you know how many times I told my story to people and they rolled their eyes? They didn't believe me. They thought it was a story, for real. They were like, oh, that can't, it can't be that bad, right? And sadly, you know, you find out and when you talk to other parent advocates, yes, it is really that bad. Um, Just to fight for your kids to get the right reading instruction in general education, just to fight for your kids to possibly have 
inclusion. There's even parents, like people today, they can work with disabled kids for a minimum of two years and they write off inclusion for the rest of their life. They don't understand the benefits. They don't understand that inclusion is a fundamental human right. They don't understand that the problem isn't that we don't have enough boxes to shove people into. The problem is that there's a box there anyway. We should be dismantling every single box. We shouldn't be advocating for more special education, more exclusion, and more one-on-one, you know, all these things. Because the truth is, these schools know the game. They know the system. What did we see with my daughter? We saw that as soon as they saw me as a real potential threat, that they were going to get on the side of... Because I think, honestly, they assumed immediately... As soon as I request the IEE, they thought I was going to hit them with a lawsuit or request due process. And I think, sadly, they were so familiar with due process, they didn't see any other avenue outside of it. So that's why they didn't know about the FIEP meeting. That's why they jumped to the assumption that we would do mediation. They totally did not understand the fact that, oh, a parent actually might care about their kid's education and know the scam or the jig is up. And that's scary to me because we employ these people, whether we like it or not, whether we know it or not, these people are working in a public school system. And even if they're not in public school, I'm sure they go to private schools. It's probably the same people in private schools that happily deny autistic students, ADHD students, and dyslexic students. Because what do they see? They see, oh, this is going to be a challenge oh, this is going to be a difficult uphill battle for this student. And I'll go ahead and quote that doctor again. And it's the messed up part is early intervention helps students the most. But I think we need to understand that that doesn't mean that they need behaviorism. That doesn't mean that interventions have to be, you know, something that is in a special education classroom that's away from everybody else. We need to understand that structured literacy can be intense for teachers and general education students, but it will benefit everyone. And a lot of these interventions that you see that are occupational therapists use, that speech language therapists use, these are beneficial to students in general education settings. But we've made this almost like a boutique of education, you know, niches when we should be working together. And it shouldn't take a parent writing a letter or sending an email to request the certain things that should be thought of as a necessary human right to have access to education. So essentially, that's why I wrote my book. I I, I don't know if anybody's going to read it. I'm fine if nobody reads it. But for me, it was very cathartic. And it was a good way to kind of process my emotions, look back on a tough situation and reflect and show and remind me exactly why I'm doing what I am today, which is homeschooling. And I'm really excited. It's, you know, a start of a new year. I get to see the progress my kids made. I recently reevaluated their phonics um, levels. Well, I wouldn't even say levels, but like their phonics like skills. And they are so far 
from what I expected. And I am just a mom. I didn't go to school to be a early childhood development person or teacher. Like, I don't have the formal education. And it's scary to me that I'm making more progress with my children than a high paid person with a PhD who went to school for all this stuff, right? And think of all the money that a district could save if they just used the free Cox Campus training, trained parents that cared about their own children, and we could solve the literacy crisis no problem because we know what works. Neuroscience and neurodiversity tells us everybody needs structured literacy. So why is there still a battle? And I'll tell you why. Money. If we take money out of this battle, people wouldn't have a leg to stand on. There would be no need to fight. Because the truth is, all these companies that sell curriculums, they are selling something that they don't really have to prove it works. They just have to prove that, hey, somebody else bought it and it kind of worked for them. So why don't you buy it and see if it works for you? And that's why even with homeschooling, I don't purchase a curriculum. I make my own. And I don't really have to purchase curriculum also because our public education in America and even in other countries, they usually post what they do for free. And I mean, sure, you might not like certain like history lessons, you might not like certain, you know, science projects, and that's fine. You can customize it to your kid. But when it comes to reading and math, there's no program that is going to be better than just the basics. And it scares me to think that people sell this idea of, oh, well, I have this method that really helps your kid learn fast. Because the truth is, We shouldn't be advocating for education to be fast and easy because life is not fast and easy. We shouldn't encourage this rushing of learning or growing to our children. And we need to be upfront and honest that education is hard. It's hard for parents. It's hard for teachers. It's hard for school. And if it wasn't hard, it wouldn't be worth it. And I can tell you that right now. Like, was it easy for me to sit down and take those hour-long Cox Campus courses? No. But I knew in the end it was beneficial to help my own children. And it's less work for me to teach, to do the hard work and teach them the alphabetic code and how to break down those sounds and connect it to the letter symbols. Because I don't have to always read a book to my daughter. Today, she can pick up a book and read it herself. And I can teach her how to use a dictionary to look up a word she doesn't know to see how it's pronounced. What does it mean? And we can talk about it. But does that mean I don't read aloud to my kids anymore? No, I still do read alouds. It's still a connection process. We still, you know, communicate in a way that is educational. And learning doesn't have to stop just because, you know, we say homeschool is between eight and two. We can learn anytime. And I think it's important. And what I love to see about a lot of homeschool families is that the parents are admitting that they are learning alongside their child. And I think all humans should keep learning. We shouldn't cut off learning at any age. We shouldn't cut off learning at any grade. We should all continuously be critical thinkers, have questions, ask questions, 
do research. And it doesn't always have to be a special interest for you to do that. You know, like, understand that doing research on something that you might not be interested in is almost just as important as doing research for something you are interested in. So I want to thank you for listening. And thank you for joining us. Um, This has been really a wonderful idea to put on this season and kind of just info dump of my history of being a parent advocate because it doesn't really stop even if you're a homeschool mom now you're kind of like a homeschool advocate too right but I love the fact that the social media platform that I've created the neuroforming parent even though I had to switch accounts um you guys are still with me I love interacting with you I love sharing your content I love you sharing my content I love that it's like this little wonderful wholesome community that we can all work together and learn from um But I think it's important just to remember that whether you're currently an IEP mom or dad fighting the school system, or if you are like me or a disgruntled mom or dad that has withdrawn and completely gone to the homeschool, we're on the same team. Parents should be always on the same team. And it's on the team of our kids. We are fighting for their education. And I think it's so important because in a day where you know, parents understand that our tax dollars are going to a system that's broken. And if parents, if teachers are getting underpaid, we're part of that broken system. And I think it's up to us to fight for teachers to get equal pay or fair pay or a livable wage. And it's up to us to fight for teachers to get neurodiversity training for, you know, trauma and trauma informed training to social emotional learning training and everything under the sun because if we're not asking or holding these schools and teachers accountable no one else will so thank you so much for listening this is the neuroforming parent signing off